0: This is Joe Reed with the special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine.
1: Hell is empty, Armand, said Stephen Horowitz. You've mentioned that. And all the devils are here? asked Armand Gamache. Well, maybe not here, here, Stephen spread his expressive hands. Exactly. Here, here was the garden of the Musée Rodin in Paris, where Armand and his godfather were enjoying a quiet few minutes. Outside the walls they could hear the traffic, the hustle and the tussle of the great city. But here, here, there was peace. The deep peace that comes not just with quiet, but with familiarity.
0: That was actor Robert Bathurst reading All the Devils Are Here. The latest installment, number 16 to be precise in Canadian authors Louise Penny's immensely popular and award-winning mystery series, and one of Audiophile's picks for Best Of in 2020. The series revolves around Chief Inspector Armand Gamache of the Provincial Police Force for Quebec. The books are set largely in Three Pines, a fictional town in the province of Quebec that on one hand is connected to more than its fair share of murder, and on the other hand is peopled by deeply interesting characters who form deep friendships and attachments. This is no police procedural. It's a character study of a small francophone town and its inhabitants, where food and weather take center stage. Gamache himself is an honorable and kind man, who also happens to be our first-rate detective and a natural leader. And happily for actor Robert Bathurst, The books had established Gamache, a native French speaker, as speaking English with a British accent. Bathurst himself is a Brit, and well-established in theatre and television in England. On this side of the pond, we know him best for his portrayal of Sir Anthony, who left Lady Edith at the altar in Downton Abbey. Although Robert came to the Louise Penny series midway, replacing the very popular Ralph Cosham, who tragically died after narrating the first 10 books. Robert has gotten great acclaim for his narration. Audi Award nominations, earphone awards from Audiophile Magazine, and the Audi Award in 2020 for the Best Male Narrator for Kingdom of the Blind. I spoke with Robert Bathurst recently, and I asked him to give me his take on the Gamash series created by Louise Penny.
1: She's written this series set in a mythical village in the state of Quebec. It's a village that isn't on the map. And there's a sort of element, there's a sort of mystical spiritual element to it, really, which I think takes it away from being just an ordinary cop story. It isn't process-driven. It's driven by sort of other things and, and spiritual with a small s in some ways because what she's created is almost a a manifesto for how to live well in a cruel world. It just shows that despite all the ghastliness and the terror and the, and the violence and the murder, that good does exist. And that seems to be the, the underlying message of it all. Of course, you never know quite what's going to happen and you don't know whether evil will prevail. And, and you, you're always on the edge of your seat with, with all her plotting, which is, which is so... it's cast iron, it's, done, it's brilliantly constructed. And the central figure is this man called Armand Gamache, who um, is sort of based, I think, well, Louise, if you interview her, I think he's sort of loosely based really on her late husband, Michael. And he's very tough. He's flawed, of course, like like so many heroes of mystery drama. But he, he presides over a, a story which is both utterly humane and just simply excitingly told.
0: I have to say, we'll talk about the current book in in a moment, but the character of The Village of Three Pines and its inhabitants are so central. I love them. I love the bistro. I love the bookstore. I love the boulangerie. And I'm always so thankful. The weather is so central, so I don't think it's paradise because I just think winter there would be so horrible. But I just listen to them with this kind of longing.
1: Yes, they're very sensual. In, in amongst all the, 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 the police stuff and the, and, the, and the murders and the terrible, huge, big themes of sometimes of, of consequence to the, to the whole world not just into that region. They are deeply sensual and you, you feel the warmth of the bistro. You, you can taste. That. She's, she's very good at, on food. Oh, is she good and, on and food? I, I think, <laughs> I think you, could, you could do a sort of a series of recipes really from the Gamash books. She talks about food and she, you can smell the, the wood smoke fire and, and, and there's a sort of enormous comfort because Three Pines in her mind and comes across in the books is, is a place for people who are essentially lost, who, who have got something to sort of um, yearn for and Three Pines is a sanctuary. OK, Three Pines also has a lot, a lot of things happening in it which, which are you know, ghastly, but at root it is a place where people who live there have found sanctuary, and ultimately, of course, it, it, most of the books return to Three Pines when there is some re- a resolution there, and Three Pines is always such a sort of draw for the reader as well as the, uh, the characters who live there. Mona's mind drifted again. She vaguely noted Gabri getting up and tossing more logs onto the fires in the open hearths at either end of the bistro. He paused to chat with customers as more villagers came in from the cold, stamping their feet and rubbing their freezing hands. They were met with warmth and the scent of maple wood smoke, tourtier just out of the oven, and the permanent aroma of coffee embedded into the beams and wide plank floors.
0: Friendship and food are so central to these books. We mentioned food but friendship, too, and the friendship that the central characters have, the six or seven central characters, recurring characters, which is really quite lovely.
1: Yes, and, and the word love is, is, is key to it. I mean, it is, is not unsaid, because they often do, do say they love each other, but, but there is this unqualified love which runs in it. It's, it's almost sort of unfashionable to, to write about it. In different hands, it, it might not have the same effect, but it does remind one of the human capacity for love. And uh, that, I think, prevails in all the books.
0: You came to the series in book 11, replacing Ralph Cosham, who read the first 10. And that had to be a challenge for you, Robert, in some way, because you want to respect what Ralph had done, but you also had to make it your own.
1: Yes, indeed. I mean, I had to read them and, and do my own take on them and the, and the characters. I didn't want to do an impression of what uh, Ralph was doing. I wanted it to come from uh, how I saw it and how I was able to interpret it and how I could, thought I could bring it on. But uh, mindful, of course, that, uh, that the contract with, a, with, a, with an audiobook reader, it's a really special one, and it's, it's one that you have to try and try and get right. You have to do it in your own way, and you have to try and make the characters breathe and make the plot tell and make, make give clarity, but also try and um, paint the picture that uh, Louise has painted. But there's a danger that the reader might get in the way between the author and the, and the listener. You've got to sort of do a, quite a subtle dance just to say, this has nothing to do with me, this is all about the author, this is all about the characters, and just try and pique the imagination of the listeners in addition to leading them in a, in a, in a way that I see it. So, so there are two readers at play. One is the actual reader who's speaking, but there's also the, the person who's sitting back and hearing your voice but just connecting really with, with the author.
0: I'm curious. What attracted you to audiobooks? To to narrate them? You you have a big career on television. You you perform in theater. What attracted you to taking on Louise Penny's books?
1: Well, all actors will say it's lovely to be invited. <laughs> <laughs> but I I've always done radio. I've always I've always done voice work. I mean, I started in radio, and moved into uh, stage and TV and and so forth. So it was, it's a natural progression to do that. I've done a few other books, um, not that many. but uh, so when the call came, I gather Louise heard a few tapes and, and so forth and chose me. I'm, I'm really, really delighted that, uh, that she did. I, it's a challenge. I mean it's really hard work. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not shirking from it. I'm just I'm just stating a fact and any audiobook reader will tell you that um, you work harder doing an audiobook than you do on, in most other branches of the acting profession. Uh, certainly harder than turning up to do a, a commercial for 30 seconds. And uh, you you really have to prepare it. And I love the rigour of that. I love the the degree of freedom. As I say, it was daunting to take over a series rather than do something from scratch. But it was really appealing. And when I read it, I thought it was really exciting. And when doing it, I, I really enjoy each each book I've done with, with a key figure in this whole process, which is the, dire- the director, Lorelei King. We work on it together, and of course with the engineer, and each time at about sort of certain stages during the book, I'll always say to the engineer, OK, who did it? <laughs> and I always pin them back and make, make them come up with, a, with an answer. And uh, I do this progressively all the way through the book from, from about halfway. And right to the end, even to the end, uh, none of the engineers have got it right, which is a great sign. It's a great sign. that. Uh, and I told Louise that, and she was really chuffed and uh, it just shows that uh, her her structure that she's done that she 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 pulls off is beautifully beautifully drawn
0: agreed now how did you go about creating the voices for the characters and and obviously there are ancillary characters who come in to the various books but there you know there's a core of six or seven how do you how did you create those characters
1: well it's this it, it is a really interesting one because I'm anglo of course I'm english uh, Gamache is french canadian If I was doing him as he would speak, I would be narrating it in French. But of course, the market is wider than that. I couldn't be an Anglo-Canadian because he's meant to be a French-Canadian. That would get in the way of some people. So what the decision they made is to cast uh, an English voice because Gramsci has spent a lot of time in England and that's deemed to be acceptable. But most of the characters aren't speaking in the language in which they speak in the book. So there is a certain amount of license then to do what I want to do with it. And I I find a pitch for each of the characters. I find a facial setting. Um, I discuss it with Lorelei. We try and find a variety. But I, I always take one reader as my sort of yardstick on how to do it or how to approach it. He's an English actor called Timothy West. And he did, the, he did the Barchester Chronicles, so he did the Trollope, Angie Trollope's Barchester Chronicles and many other, many other classics, but the Trollope he did was just superb. And what he did was, you never lost sight of the fact that it was Tim West reading it. But on the other hand, every character had a, a, a different nuance, a different rhythm, a different tone, a different pitch, a different key, which didn't make you think, gosh, there are 40 actors in this, but it was just subtle enough to trigger in the mind of the listener, the image of that character. And that's what I try to achieve. I, I don't sort of try to do vocal gymnastics with it. And I sometimes think that when, when people do that, it's sometimes technique gets in the way of the story and the, and the truth of the character and the rhythm and indeed the writing. So I, I do have a physical set for each of, the, each of the characters. I have the regulars, of course, I, I can bring off the shelf um the new ones <laughs> need a bit of work <laughs> but uh, in the last one there were 40 characters i think of 20 oh, 20 lot. or so <laughs> of them were, were, were um principal characters but even the small ones you need to be able to immediately see them so sometimes they're the hardest ones because you try and slip them into into the conversation and uh, they got to live so it's it's i regard it as a performance not just a reading i mean in one way I read books which are simply um, uh, narration, not characters. But uh, I really enjoy the challenge of trying to paint different characters, and um, some of them, seven of them, in the same room at the same time.
0: <laughs> well, clearly you're very successful. Six books later, you've been nominated for multiple audio awards, and in fact, you got the 2020 audio award for best male narrator for Kingdom of the Blind. Many congratulations, very well deserved. Have the characters evolved? In terms of the way you represent them over the course of six books?
1: Without doubt, I'm sure they have. Yes, certainly when I first did the first one, which was, I think, The Nature of the Beast. Yes, I had an idea of the characters. And, and in my own mind, their characterization has got richer in some cases, has got more grounded in in others. Yeah, I feel sometimes I just put on these characters, you know, take them, as I say, take them down off the shelf or or, or put them on like a, a nice warm overcoat and I just, off, off I go with them and I'm completely at ease with it. And so, yes, I suppose the, the more I've done these characters, the, the, the perhaps the greater facility I have for doing them.
0: Well, as we said, these are mysteries, not procedurals, but they're mysteries. I'm curious about pacing. And I would think with these books, it's even more of a challenge because there is the mystery part, but then there's the camaraderie and the friendship and the eating part.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and I think I take my lead from the author on, on, on this one because the underscoring of it, the pacing of it, if it was done on television, there would be a different sort of uh, soundtrack to it. That presents itself in some ways because in, in the narration, it would be a very different thing if it was a radio play. And, and it'd be a very difficult thing to adapt because the, the dialogue is one thing, but it, it's a great n- narration in, the, in, in between the, the dialogue that is so vivid that the tension and the, and the pacing and the inner thoughts of the characters are all painted. And so uh, I can take my lead as, as, the, as the performer of them. I've always got the audience in mind as well as to how you, know, you want to lead, lead them on with a, with a certain tension, but it's, it's there in the way it reflects it. I'm just trying to reflect the writing, and the writing does dictate the level of tension and or the level of laid-back warmth. But so often with, with those characters, there's in amongst the laid-back warmth, there's, there's such travel going on and, and people of doing their best and trying to keep everything together. The, but those inner tensions are, are, are really well-created.
0: Do you speak with Louise when you prepare?
1: No, I mean, I, with, not when I'm preparing. I got to know her only since I did uh, Glass Houses, and she, she happened to be in London, where we record them always. And I've never asked her this. I've, I've met her several times, but I'm absolutely sure she doesn't listen to them because she's got she's got those characters in her head. I mean, she's she's created them, and um, I'd be very surprised if she, if she listens to them. She's incredibly supportive, and with the Audi and, and the nominations and everything like that, she's been very 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 warm. But uh, you know, I interviewed her at the end of Glasshouses. Actually, it's it's a thing that Macmillan Audio tucked away at the end of Glasshouses, which is an interview I did with her, and I'd never met her before. She just came into the into the studio. Uh, sat down and we did 45 minutes of me asking her all sorts of things which I've <laughs> been wanting to ask her for a long time. So anyway, that's when we first met and we've had a couple of lunches and lots of exchanges. But no, I'd, when, when preparing it, I won't discuss it with her because it's a different beast. She won't want to listen to it. My job is to take on what she's done. It wouldn't be right. I'm sure it wouldn't be right for her to want to advise because in a sense the work is done and um, I'm just one of many, many readers.
0: She's the composer, you're the pianist.
1: I'm the interpreter. I think acting is essentially an interpretive profession. It's rather like a pianist taking on a piece of music. You can pace it and colour it. And another pianist would take that uh, concerto in a different way.
0: You've, You've had many, many series on TV, most popularly in the UK, Cold Feet, and probably in the US, it would be Downton Abbey. You were Sir Anthony. Just remind us briefly who that was.
1: Poor hapless Sir Anthony, he started off by uh, sort of tilting his hat at Lady Mary uh, and was seen off by her. But then he sort of, well, became um, attached to Lady Edith. He, I think he asked her for a drive, if she wanted to go for a drive. And, uh, and in uh, 1912, asking someone to go for a drive was as good as a, as a marriage offer, you know. <laughs> so there was a sort of connection there then. But that didn't strike up until after the First World War, during which, it would appear, I lost the use of my right arm. Although what I was doing fighting at my age, I've no idea. Then in the third series, this one-armed Sir Anthony was making courtly love to uh, Lady Edith, who was much, much younger. And they did get as far as the altar rail, <laughs> uh, only for Sir Anthony to bail out. In, in a move which has led to some pretty sharp comment in the street from people <laughs> saying, how could you? How could you do that to a young girl? And, but in fact, actually, he was utterly honourable. And, and in fact, as far as Julian Fellows was concerned, it was an opportunity for Lady Edith to go off and do all sorts of things.
0: Well, here's my question, because you take television as a medium and you take theater and then audiobooks. These are three very different ways of performing, and I'd just like you to talk about the differences among them.
1: I think in theater you do your own editing. That's what I love about doing theater. I love doing all of them, but it's good to understand that, that in, in a TV scene, when you're doing it, you, you don't know which angle they're going to be taking. You don't know even how, how well the scene is going to be paced. Can, they can chop it and and do all sorts of things with it so so really it's in the in post-production that the that the scene gets the rhythm of the scene the um emphasis of the scene can can change hugely whereas on stage it's just you two or you four or whatever it is and you you have to angle it you have to your audience is, is there on a certain angle so you've got to make sure that that it's like a camera would, that the, that the audience can see you. You pace it, and so the scene is, is very much more in, in your control. So that, I think, is, is a major difference. On on another level, they're exactly the same. Um, the whole thing is about getting through to the audience. The only, the only thing that matters is the audience and whether they, first of all, understand it, <laughs> they can hear it, which isn't always the case. And so then le- leading them by the nose in one direction and then surprising them with another. And uh, that's achievable on film or in theatre, but essentially it's the same process. It's engaging and surprising, possibly making them laugh or, um, you know, engage them more emotionally.
0: It's interesting because I would think that is absolutely the case, but I would think technically they call for different things. I mean, in in television, for example, probably you have to be able to bring it after waiting around for two hours. Two, you're you're lucky. Two if you're lucky, exactly. (laughs) Theatre... You have to be able to bring it with a consistency night after night after night. And audiobooks, it's so intimate. You just have your voice. And now we all have these devices. You're literally talking in our ear.
1: Uh, yes, but just going back to that re- repetition thing, in some ways on, on, on TV you're, you're doing the same scene possibly 30 times from different angles, rehearsals, retakes yep. and all sorts of things like that. So in a sense I often think that if you can repeat something five times you can repeat it 500 times because it's, it's the same juices flowing, it's the same kidding yourself in the moment that it's the first time you're saying it. So in one sense, acting is, is about repeating yourself plausibly. Everybody can act once, and, and there's nobody who can't uh, act once. Uh, it's just uh, the actor's job is, is to keep acting for the first time <laughs> countless <laughs> times. But in, in audiobooks, uh, you know, if I'm not happy with a take, of course I prepared it hard. But in mm. the moment, the moment of performing it, there are some times when I think, well, it didn't work. And uh with Laura King, you can you can just sort of roll back and just do that again and squeeze the language and find the find the rhythm if there's a particularly difficult shift between two characters who have a very different setting for their voices and their face and the rest of it. Uh, you know she doesn't hurry you in and, and the engineers are so good at just cutting a little pause in between the two so it, so that it flows, but you're not rushing it. you know you're not, you're not having to do the version, which is unedited. The unedited version often has another go at it, maybe a paragraph, a tricky paragraph. You can see it as a, just a dress rehearsal, and then you do it again, and you think, yeah, well, maybe that's okay, and Lorelei gives it the nod, and off we go, and we, we continue. So it, in, in audiobooks, it's, it is a process, and it's a process of, of trial, really, and uh, some, sometimes you think, well, that was okay, let's carry on. Sometimes you think, well, no, let's, let's uh, give that another whirl.
0: Well, where is Armand Gamache in All the Devils Are Here, the latest book? Well, every
1: second Three Pines mystery leaves Three Pines, it seems, more or less. This time, we've left Three Pines, and as has been set up, uh, Gamache and uh, Remarie's son, uh, Daniel, is uh, living in Paris, so there's a good reason to come to Paris. And so they find themselves in Paris for the first time. They leave They leave the North American continent for the first time. And uh, Jean-Guy has got a job in Paris, so we have Jean-Guy there. He's left the Sûreté, and... Daniel's godfather, whom we met in the previous book, Stephen Horowitz, and uh, something terrible happens, and uh, Gamash again, is having to sort it out. But again, he finds himself, and there are many other people who we like care for very much, who are in deep, deep peril. Speak to Daniel. Make it up with him. The words shocked Amor, and he turned to Stephen. Pardon? Daniel, you need to make peace. But we have, years ago. Everything's okay between us. The sharp blue eyes turned on Armand. Are you so sure? What do you know, Stephen? I know what you know, that old wounds run deep, they can fester. You see it in others, but miss it in your own son. Armour felt a spike of anger, but recognized it for what it was pain, and below that, fear. He'd mended the wounds with his oldest child years ago. He was sure of it, hadn't he?
0: And how was it being in Paris? Because this is different from Quebec in terms of the voices and the accents, no?
1: That was another really interesting thing because of course, so many of the French Canadian voices, I don't do any sort of French tone to them. I felt that in Paris, that sometimes these characters were speaking in English, sometimes they're speaking in French, although they're always speaking in English in the book. But uh, in reality, they'd be speaking in French, much as the characters in in Quebec would be speaking in French. Yeah, of the 42 characters, I think there were about (laughs) 15 of them uh, were French, very major characters. So, yes, I had to paint them in the imagination of the listener. It was a challenge, yeah, and and you just had to find a way and and really to write your own rules because the rules are so flexible in the sense that they're not speaking the language they're speaking and, as I was saying before, then I had to sort of create my own rules for it, as has been the case throughout this series. Jean-Guy Beauvoir had thought about that conversation a lot in the following weeks and months, and he thought about it again as he looked at his deputy head of department radiating Dior and resentment. I think I can muddle through the Luxembourg plans, Severine, merci. How's work going on the Patagonia project? Patagonia? I know nothing about Patagonia. She got to her feet. I'm sorry. I was under the impression you'd want to talk about the Luxembourg project. Why would you think that? Well, the final safety tests are next week. Maybe you'd like to be there for that. I don't see why. Would you like to go? Is that why you're here? No, no, it's okay. You just hope that the rules are uh, things which uh, the, the, the listener sort of takes to and and, uh, and it doesn't get in the way of engaging their imagination in the story.
0: When you are in the studio, are you thinking of a particular listener? Are you, are you performing for one person?
1: I'm not doing that. I, I understand the value of doing that in a lot of broadcasting. But in in this, I've got the picture in my head. I, I'm in it, but I'm outside it, and I'm in it. I'm always with the, with the listener in mind. Just I imagine the scene. I mean, I can see the scene when I'm yeah. when I'm reading it, and I smell the wood smoke and and all those things. I try to feel the the senses that the writing engenders. So no, I'm not I'm not actually doing it. I I think there's a danger if you are doing that with a, a multi-character thing of of it becoming more about the voice than it is about the characters. I have a sort of distaste for voice beautiful stuff because it's just too technical. It's too it's too about the room too much about the reader and is that the reader is irrelevant on in in many ways and so we're not there to admire technique we are there to just get the characters across so if i can be in the scene and I can be on top of what each character is doing and, and try and vary the character and then slip into the narration without characterizing that or letting the, the characters leech into the narration and uh, c- keep that separate. So no, it's, I don't have the reader in mind. I've just got the images in mind, obviously the words. If I can feel it, make sense of it, not feel it personally, but if I can um, sense it, then um, the audience has a chance of sensing it too.
0: I think audiobooks probably have to be the least ego-driven performance in the performing arts. And and I'm not suggesting that performances lead with ego, but I think you so have to sublimate yourself with audiobooks.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I I think that's actually a rule of of performance generally. I know it's not fashionable to say it. All art is now meant to be embodied, and it's meant to be about you and and your agenda. Put that on hold. That's boring. So if we're going to surrender to anything, don't just surrender to the story.
0: You've pretty much stuck to narrating Louise Penny's books. I know you've done other audiobooks, but basically we know you as the narrator of the Gamache series. And I'm curious if you would think about branching out and doing other audiobooks.
1: Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I really would. So yes, I'd be on to that. I, mean, I'm doing, I do my acting and you know, the theatre shows and all the rest of it. But as like, <laughs> a call out to all producers there. I'm, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely up for it. And uh, I would love to do more.
0: You know the pandemic has been so difficult, especially with the performing arts. It's just heartbreaking. But audiobook narration has had something of a reprieve because of the way it's put together. You know, it's studio. It's if not solo, one or two other people. And I also think during during this time, more people are are relying on audiobooks than they had before. I know I am. I'm a great reader and I like listening to audiobooks a great deal. But listening, especially to Gamache, as I'm walking the dogs, as I'm working in the garden, I find it so immensely comforting and interesting. And it's really quite wonderful. It's been a gift. It really has been a gift for me.
1: Well, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. And I, I've been in the garden with audiobooks running in my head. And, and oddly enough, when I, when I think back of a book, I can very often picture that where I was during a particular scene. Yeah. Or if it's, uh, if it's a drive, it's been on the car, but uh, certainly in, in the garden I've been sort of, there have been days picking apples or whatever it is like that with a particular book going. And uh, it's a huge comfort. And it's a great way of just also grabbing the classics. You know, you, you can go walking and, and you can take on some really, really, fun, really great literature.
0: And let me ask you finally, Robert, if you were going to meet one person from Three Pines, who would it be?
1: Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think I'd like to sit down and have a beer with Billy Williams. <laughs> oh,
0: I love Billy Williams. Well, mine would be Myrna. We could oh, Myrna all, all four of us Myrna could go. Myrna would be
1: fantastic. <laughs> Myrna would be great fun. And, and uh, you know, Billy Williams, he'd be out in all weathers and, and he'd have all the, the country stories and he'd know he's really tough and capable and, uh, and funny. So, yeah, I'd like to. And I'd seems like to. to know everything. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is great. Great choice. Robert, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for these wonderful books. Well,
1: thank you, John. I'm really glad you enjoyed them.
0: That was Audio Award winner Robert Bathurst. He narrates Louise Penny's Inspector Armand Gamache series. The latest, All the Devils Are Here, is one of Audiophile Magazine's picks for the best of in 2020. Go to audiophilemagazine.com. Where you can get all our suggestions for some of the best listening in 2020. This has been a special edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.